0: I speak to you this day in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. In the past week, social media feeds of Episcopalians have been flooded by an article written by the President of the House of Deputies, the lay part of the decision making body of the Episcopal Church. President Ayala Harris alleged that in July of 2022, during the General National Convention of our Church, which gathers every three years, she experienced an incident of unwanted and non-consensual physical contact of implied sexual nature. She says she was physically overpowered and lost bodily autonomy by a retired bishop, Who was waiting for her arrival to introduce her to his bishop colleagues who were there to welcome her to the House of Bishops. She is still amid the process of disciplinary action case as she opened a year later. On another account, two years ago, the Bishop of Eastern and Western Michigan was censured and dismissed from Episcopal ministry after the news of his ongoing extramarital affair became public. And on Friday, the former bishop of Rochester, a retired dean of Cathedral Church of St. John the Divine from New York, who was now serving as a bishop provisional in the said diocese above, that was recovering from the news of their former bishop's extramarital affair, was censured completely from Episcopal ministry by the disciplinary board of the Episcopal Church in its New York headquarters. Bishop Singh is accused of being domestically, verbally, and psychologically abusive to his two adult children and now ex-wife for over a decade. On Friday, he submitted his resignation and left his post, if you call it voluntarily. The bishops above are censured and sometimes dismissed from active ministry, but they leave their roles with full retirement and benefits with little to none legal consequences. Their interests, according to my belief, are protected by canon lawyers strictly, and often it takes over a year to charge them with a conviction during which the accused continues to function with little knowledge to their diocese or congregations under their charge. The people who accuse them must stay silent during the whole process until a conviction is made by the church disciplinary board. A bishop presides over the conviction of a guilty bishop. The system of Episcopal ministry is built to protect itself first and this is wrong. The church at this moment is having the crucial discussion of its disciplinary process and its necessity to fairly include and judge the ministerial abuses committed by the most powerful order of ministry in the church, bishops. People believe there must be swifter processes and more serious consequences. People believe there must be justice for the victims and public acknowledgement of these sins. The standards that a parish rector or a lay employee is held to should be the standards for bishops when it comes to termination and zero tolerance. I don't mean to come across as an anti-establishment person here. I've been accused of worse. But I must call a spade a spade. What does this have to do with the lesson from Matthew's gospel this morning? Providentially, the lectionary appointed this lesson from Matthew, which provides instructions on disciplinary process of the Christian congregational life. Matthew eighteen fifteen through 20 addresses members of the Christian church that are in serious sin while staying unrepentant and disruptive. Is Matthew talking about sin as a general concept or when a specific sin is committed in the congregation? Sin, in general, causes fracture to the Christian bond of unity, and charity, present with God and his members, the body of Christ. We can approach the text both generally and specifically, but if you're thinking about a slight or a sin someone in this room committed against you, you become more passionate and real as the hurt is present, tangible, and relatable. It's not about some bishop out there, is it? It's about you and me now. This sin, whatever it is, then becomes a matter of community concern. How do we deal with this? Jesus teaches us that a private conversation between the offended and the offender is the first step to make things right. The kind conversation must take place to avoid public embarrassment. Jesus is clear that it is the duty of the hurt and injured to go to the person that has committed the sin. If and only then, after one-on-one confrontation happens, the person, if they don't change and show remorse for their actions, then the issue is to be made semi-public with one of the two members of the church that will go to the person to reason with him. Why do a small community of three members go to this person? This way each party can be protected from misrepresentation and there can be witnesses. Why witnesses? Matthew here reframes a long-time Jewish tradition of such reconciliatory acts on behalf of the community from Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Leviticus 19 says states, You shall not hate your brother or sister in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Deuteronomy 19 says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three shall a charge be established. The church in this text from Matthew is meant to be understood as a local congregation, not primarily as the universal body of believers. Christian church here in the Matthew context has its own disciplinary process outside of the Jewish synagogue. The sinner, only after being talked to with individuals and with a handful of members, should face the whole church. What is so hard about all this? The hard thing is that we hear in this text that it is our duty as the family of God gathered here at St. Peter's to directly address the person, any person, that have committed a sin against us. It is our lesson to address the unrepentant child of God who is causing this unity within the body. Not just the priest, not just the senior warden, but it is our job individually. Now, this approach is different than what commonly happens in churches. The common practices are these. Let's get together and condemn the person. Let's talk to each other about the offense and create a gossip tree. While the person is completely unaware... Or let's preach a sermon out of the blue about how some people are doing this and some people are doing that, spewing generalities and condemning things with the passive-aggressive idea that people will hear our message. These are easier to do, but unkind and unchristian ways of dealing with specific sins. The other unkind and often easier way to deal with things in the, in the churches that I've been in is to be in denial of what's happening. To wait for the person that is fracturing the community to learn their lesson magically. And perhaps it will eventually go away. We'll get over it and maybe they will stop. This, my friends, in my experience, almost never happens. Jesus says, not me, if they remain unrepentant, let them be like a tax collector and a Gentile among you. Cut the person off after exhausting these options for the sake of the community. The language here seems strangely harsh, since Jesus and his community is known to be befriending tax collectors and sinners and Gentiles. But here, the Christian community as a whole is concerned with the ethics of its individual members, and it intervenes in the spirit of love and forgiveness to take pastoral action that is more than just advice. The goal is not to maintain the holiness of insiders, but to bring straying members to an awareness of their sins, to repentance, and eventual restoration as well. The language of binding and losing on earth and heaven demonstrates that the authority that was given to Peter by Jesus to make theological decisions is now given to the local congregation with the understanding that the matter is discerned by prayerful consideration. When done prayerfully and according with the precepts of Holy Scripture, The decision that is made by the church against a personal matter of sin is the decision of Christ's. Why is it done this way? Why this kind of disciplinary process? The process is set to preserve our community's integrity as the holy covenant people of God. If we say that we are Christians, We are to live with commandments, statutes, and guidelines that sets us apart from the rest of the world. Often, we see sin with small s as a matter between ourselves to God or a matter between ourselves and another person that betrayed us. But sin is a matter of the Christian congregation to which we belong and may damage its life. And may come as a surprise to both us and them if they are as individualistic as we are. Whatever we think of the solution Matthew offers, we might first think of the nature of the Christian life it presupposes. A doctrine of the church as the people of God is here presupposed. To be a Christian is to be bound together in community, to pray is to say, Our Father even in the privacy of our own room. We can't get around going to the person that has injured us or talking to the church leaders about the matter if it's not solved. But we must be careful that we are not acting with the motivation of self-righteous vindictiveness, but we are acting with the genuine care of the fractured person who is breaking from the communion. We must imagine grace and forgiveness, as our utmost desire in this process. A sin, a fault which is not acknowledged honestly, throws us into the possibility of self denial, which ultimately leads us to greater sickness. This sickness can and will infect the whole earthly body of Christ. The condition of sin is pathological and progressive. Over time, when not treated will get worse never better left untreated it will result in the death of our soul for this christ died to crucify our sin to the flesh and this cr- sacrifice on the cross is the atonement that tethers us to the love of god you and i cannot test the strength of this promise By living unchanged lives that only pay lip service to this great hope. But we can guard it by accepting it as a sacred treasure. It is love on the cross that accepted by each Christian becomes the promise and the medicine. The offender, whether it's us or another, does not just hurt themselves they fracture the whole local body. While condemnation is never our goal, the protection of the Christian body from the unrepentant person who lives as if the Nile is the river in Egypt is the means by which members of the God's church can live in safety, love, and trust. The safe environment is necessary for the Holy Spirit to grow, nurture, and bring new life to our congregation. We don't call our parish a place of saints. We expect to reform sinners who are abandoning themselves to the grace of God. But only after recognizing our sinful condition and addressing it openly can we find healing. To be a Christian, is to know that there are consequences to one's actions. We are not doormats that will silently condone people to be mistreated and abused here. Our lesson today is simple and profound. Look into our soul for our own sins, address it with our neighbor when it's affecting you, and to seek to restore the bond of Christ's reconciliation with the principle of honesty and accountability. Here's what Bill Wilson writes in his classic book, Alcoholics Anonymous, which I believe captures the essence of today's lesson from Matthew. My hope is that it will be helpful in the week ahead for you as you recall this sermon on Matthew 18. Quote, Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. This road, friends, is where Christ is. Amen.